You are listening to Mommying While Muslim Podcast, where hosts Uzma and Zeba share their personal stories of mommying in a post-9-11 world. This podcast is designed with the Muslim American mom in mind, so grab a cup of coffee and pull up to their table. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Welcome to this special edition of Momming While Muslim. I'm Uzma Jafri. In this episode, we're looking back and reintroducing ourselves to some of our favorite guests over the past several months. We hope that they inspire you as you ring in 2023. Our first guest is Joy Turner, mother of three adult children. She talks about how we should conduct ourselves when adult kids don't practice or act according to what we expect. When we go nuclear, like we can yeah. be sometimes. Yeah. I think it makes the situation worse. Um, so, but the and they tune out. They tune out, right? For sure. So really, you're yelling, and they're not receiving it anyway. Right. So then you're like, "My throat's hurting." They're not receiving it. What is the point? And the, the college application is still not done. The assignment is still not done. Exactly. Or the, you know, all these different things are still in play, right? And it's like, what did exactly. you gain from this? So exactly. The, the blessing I would say is. Um, learning lessons and, you know, mm-hmm. maintaining a, a tighter bond as time goes on. Yes. Because yes. we're all so invested, right? And to see my oldest son, my middle child, get involved in an argument with, with, with me and my youngest, that lets me know he's he's con- he's still connected to us. He's still invested yes. in, in the success of our family, which makes me feel good. My suggestion is... Just think back to the times when you did it before and it didn't work. And think about how you feel after, right? Whether you're cursing or fussing or yelling or screaming. It's like, that just doesn't feel good for anybody. So I'm, I'm, I'm talking myself into this because I know this. I know this. And I know there's going to be another time when <clears throat> I'm going to be very upset with one of my children. Um and so I just, sometimes I just walk away and I'll be like, you know what? I, I can't manage this right now. This is not working for me. That's my new phrase for everybody. This is not working for me. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm going to go and um, rest on it, think on it or, or not think on it for about an hour. And I'll get back to you when I can. Um, yeah. Oh, I love that. Oh yeah. That is, that's my new thing. Cause I just, I don't want an ulcer. I don't want a migraine. Mm-hmm. I don't want to feel guilty for saying or doing something exactly. that. I did out of anger, right? Because I just, that I doesn't work for anybody. I'm learning so much today. Oh, good gravy. So, <laughs> man, I'm learning so much today. <laughs> mm-hmm. But no, I, I mean, I practice a lot of what I'm preaching, so to speak. Um, but it's not, it's, is it always consistent? Nope. I am human. Um, but at the end of the day, I just, I want good relationships with my children. I, I want them yeah. to stay close to me. I want them to confide in me. <clears throat> And I can honestly say my oldest two in particular have confided in me, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. so much in the last few years. <laughs> Noah. And sometimes you don't even want to know. Well, yeah. sometimes I don't want to know, but uh, it's, it's not really bad stuff. It's just, you know, like Noah, he'll yeah. say, mom, I'm so, the stuff I did when I was a teenager, I was like, don't tell me. He was like, I'm not. Aww. He was like, but I just want to apologize. Yeah. I just, you know, Aww. I just, I was, I was not, I was not a good teenager. I'm like, yeah. really? What did you, Never mind. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm looking for that because we're in the throes of that. And I'm like, I really don't want to know. And I'm hoping to get to where you are because... Well, he protected, he shielded I us. I didn't do stuff. Whatever he did, I don't really know about. I mean, I obviously know about some stuff, um, but nothing right. that put him in jail. The hospital. Or, um, yeah. 
you know. Oh, Lord. In the, it, well, <sighs> you know, he did have that accident. We talked about that last yes. time. He had a terrible uh, a car yeah. accident. He was in the car with some other boys, oh, no. and one of the boys passed away. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And Noah did end up in the hospital that night. And it was uh, a very, very challenging experience for a long time. Yeah. But I think we're finally mm-hmm. on the other side of that. I love that. Yeah. I love that. But but that goes to show you too, like with the love and support that you provide, you guys provided as a family, and not being judgmental, and to take it like I'm not ready to talk about this, and taking a step back, he was able to kind of have that resilience and getting through such a hard time. And that's ultimately what we all want as parents, right? right. Is is that opportunity to provide a space for them that you know they're not all going to be perfect, they're not all going to make the right choices, they're they're not all going to do the right things, but to, to create a space for them to be able to come back from all of that and say, I'm really sorry that I put you through that. You guys have done something well, right? We will be revisiting sex throughout February, and our first official guest is Dr. Shakira Abdullah, a doctor of nursing who is also working towards her PhD in sex education from Widener um, University. She focuses on clitoracy, which is why we have her on today. And I've got to tell you and admit a little bit um, sheepishly that I'm a little nervous, even though it was most probably grinning like a Cheshire cat, <laughs> and she is ready to pr- pounce. Welcome, Dr. Abdullah, and thank you so much for being on Mommy Well Muslim. Clitoracy is all about learning about this amazing God-given organ that we have as women that has super sensitive. It has over 8,000 nerve endings, um, very pleasurable for you to use during different sexual experiences, not just penetrative sex, because not a lot of women are able to orgasm just from penetrative sex alone they have to have some type of clitoral stimulation. So in clitoracy, we go all through the different delicious hot spots throughout the clitoris, how, you know, the G-spot, a lot of people have heard of the G-spot before. It's actually the internal aspect of the clitoris. So just learning more about different positions, different ways that you can best stimulate your clitoris during sexual experiences to get the most pleasure. I know everybody here wants to hear it, especially after watching your reels. She teaches classes on how to lick, guys. Like, oh! this is. <laughs> know, oh my like, gosh. <laughs> I mean, I signed up for the clitoracy course, okay? But I wanted to do this interview before oh, I take it because I was like, oh my I'm going to get the short, like, this is going to be my outline before I take the course, right? Oh but I was like, I, I watched the lick videos and I'm like, she's right. She ain't. She's so, right. Oh, okay. You know, so, so it's like that you, should be a premarital contract thing. You got to watch the video, boys. Oh, my before. God. OK, but let me let me just say this, because I do have nephews and people that listen to this. This this month, these series are definitely for they're all they've all got an explicit love. intro. Don't OK, worry. good. I was like, they we, all, we've got it on all the episodes. I was like, I want to make sure everybody knows that, because even I'm like, am I old enough to be taking this class right now? Oh, my God. No, But you know what? I am happy. My son listens to the podcast. I want him to watch the video. I wa- the lick video is important Girl. because it's not, you know, here's the thing. Like, we'll get to it later. Like, it's important information for men and okay. women to have because none okay. of us had this information when we got married. Can you imagine what our sex lives would have been like 20 years ago if we had known this stuff? If our husbands had known this stuff? Yes, because then I would have a lot Saber. more than four kids. Yes, okay. we would have a lot more than four kids. I know. I know. I, I don't want it. any more. But it would have been really, really, really. But it's good not too late. All of this. It's never too late. It's never too late. 
It's uh, yeah. definitely too I suck late at that. for me, okay? Never, oh. never too late. But my question <laughs> is, I know now everybody wants to know, Dr. Abdullah, what are the top three things? You already taught us one, so that doesn't count. What are the top three things we don't know about or what to do with or for that clitoris? So let's see. Number one... I know for sure a lot of people think that everything is right there on that little head. If you even know that you have the little head there, because I promise you until I went to medical school, I didn't know what it looked like. I was like, well, a lot of it, yes, is not knowing the full size of the clitoris, um, where the different aspects of the clitoris reside. I'm trying not to sound too technical, but where the the different areas of the clitoris. The sensation is maximum. Yes. And where to maximize your pleasure. So if I stimulate the lips, if, if my partner gently touches the the lips in a certain way, um, you know, that may feel good to you and why that feels good and how you can and how to talk about or how to communicate about what feels good. We as women mm-hmm. oftentimes think that, unfortunately, think that sex is for the man and this is all about his pleasure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm just, you know, I want to please him. But we don't think about ourselves. Like, what about you? Like, what about your pleasure? And how do you feel? And not voicing like, hey, babe, that felt amazing when you did that. Or I didn't really like that too much when you did that. Um, so being clear about what we like and what we don't like after our sexual experiences is important because our partner wants to please us and they think they're killing it. They think they're doing the best that they can do. <laughs> they're always so good at like subpar performances and like putting themselves <laughs> in the back. It's like at everything. Yeah, so they may not be and they got to keep doing the same thing because they think that that is what's working. So we mm-hmm. as um, women need to do a better job as communicating what feels good and what doesn't. And then teaching them, like I do this thing in clitoracy is called show, show and tell. Because sometimes women don't want to voice and use their mouth. So you can use your hand mm-hmm. and direct your partner like, you know, here, you know, this feels good. And it's really putting like your hand over his hand and that way. You know, if you don't want to voice it at that time. So that way it just redirects them to where you want them to be. No, that's good advice. I think we talked about that last week on Sex Notes where we were like, you got to communicate on uh, just basically what's working, what's not. This is very specific to uh, clitoral sensation and getting comfortable. But I think to be able to communicate, you have to be A, knowledgeable about your own body and then B, open to, you know, doing exactly what you said, which is directing somebody on what feels good and what doesn't. And I think, you know, early on in our sexual experiences, like you don't even know when you're sensing it, is this a good feeling or a bad feeling? Because you've never had it before. So your frame of reference is like nothing, right? So I think it takes some time and some practice to t- tune into yourself and be like, okay, was that is that a good feeling? Is that a bad feeling? Is that an uncomfortable feeling? Do I want to do it again? Um, and then how do we achieve that together? And then one more thing that I don't think oh. I said is um, about squirting. So your clitoris is also key to squirting. And the G-spot, mm-hmm. like I said, is the internal aspect of the clitoris. So a lot of people don't know that. And a lot of women don't know that. So that's important yeah. to know if that's what you yeah. are interested in. And that's something that you, a sensation that you're interested in experiencing. I've never heard that before in my life. And I'm so far behind, I just call lady. it female ejaculation. Yes. I've never yeah. heard of this. Oh, my God. It's female God. ejaculation, but the street word is squirting. You know, it's like, I think they have songs about it, too. So What? I know. So when my kids, you know, if I ever Am hear I it, like, like, turn that off. They have no idea what it means. My kids do not even. know what it means. It's like, 
But now I guess my son does. It's female ejaculation, son. Yeah. Well, I have to say, I I definitely, you know, I'm embarrassed. And there's going to be a portion (laughs) of our population that's going to be listening or maybe listening in private and a little bit like nervous about doing that. And I'm with you guys. I'm with you. So (laughs) don't don't get discouraged. But that's part of what we do is push ourselves outside of our comfort zone so that we're constantly learning and growing. And, you know, last month, um, if you hadn't heard already, Dr. Abdullah, we finished our Moms of Adult um, Muslims. And I know a lot of those moms, like, really, I I will gather, I will bet any amount of money that they didn't discuss the clitoris or anything like that with their adult children. And, And even though I'm a little bit sheepish about talking about these things, I love that my kids are super open and ask me these types of questions. And, And usually the most inopportune, extremely embarrassing situation public and I, <laughs> in public places and i'm trying my best to like keep a straight face not turn red and answer them so i love that you're and now i know about your program love beyond love so i'm going to be sending them to you instead but you know i actually don't want them unarmed and and i want them you know and i don't want them unfulfilled you know and not to say mm-hmm. that i am but being armed with that knowledge and being able to take control of your own sexuality i love that we're empowering women and hopefully young women to do this But, you know, I want to know, and this is what a lot of people do come to it. This is probably one of the number one questions that um, our moms DM and uh, and contact us with about, like, how do we talk to them about sex in an age-appropriate way? Like, I'm not that comfortable, to be honest with you, talking to them about squirting and this and that. Like, we kind of sit side by side. I don't make eye contact, and I try to have these conversations. But, like, what's something, and usually I have the conversation when they're old enough to ask me about it. I want to, to be able to talk to them directly. So what is something, what are some of the terms that we should be able to use or some resources we can send them to um, so that, or we can read ahead of time, like myself, so that we can talk about these conversations with them in a non-blush worthy way. We are continuing our detoxifying Muslim sex. And today's guest is Megan Wyatt. She is a speaker, trainer, author, and personal development relationship coach. Welcome, Welcome. Megan Wyatt. Assalamu alaikum. For those who are kind of new, and I'm going to put them in the like one to three year category, if you will, okay. kind of a, a range there. That sounds appropriate to me. Yeah. yeah, just like the first few years. In some cases, one to six, you know. But <laughs> sure. Um, but like the one to three years, I mean, obviously there's the first year everybody talks about being hard as you're getting to know each other, adjusting to living with a human. Mm-hmm. Somebody has their toothbrush next to your toothbrush, you know, all those things Ew. that you've got to adjust yeah. to, right? Um, but I think that interestingly enough, one of the, there, there's, a, there's a number of them, but one of the, this can be kind of complicated because in a way, part of the challenges that they're facing is because of these other bigger issues, right? How sex has been taught growing up, where they got their exposure from. Was there a positive, you know, sex positive dialogue in the home around this topic or was all the education coming from YouTube um, or Mm. pornography or, you know, what other people were saying? So really what's happening, just like in marriage in general, everybody arrives with a set of baggage, you know, and you've got them all sitting next to you and he's got him, his sitting next to him. And now we got to figure out what to do with the baggage. Some of it we're going to keep, some of it we got to get rid of, and some of it needs time to sort. 
So really when it comes to the sexual experience of a couple, it's going to come down to that first and foremost, right? How do they each arrive understanding sex itself? How mm-hmm. have they understood their, their role as a male or as a female? So really their belief system is very important when it comes to this space. And sometimes people are always asking, is there a way that we can figure this out before marriage? And this is a difficult one because we tend to not, I mean, how exactly do you have a conversation about sex, for example, with someone that's never had it, right? There's no, there's no way to, for someone to say, you know, well, how often are you going to be interested or how, how frequent do you think this is going to happen? I mean, Mm -hmm. these kinds of questions, and these are things I've heard from men, by the way, asking, well, why can't we ask women when we're getting to know them, how frequent they think they want to have sex? Cause I want a woman that wants sex a lot. And I'm like, how are you going to ask that question to someone that has no experience? And even if somebody has experience, (laughs) yeah. And even if somebody has experience, how are they going to answer that question? So they see what you're like. And how you treat mm-hmm. them and how you engage with them. So there's like these, like, yeah, like there's these kind of silly ideas around like frequency and numbers and getting married with this in their head. And this is where I think that first challenge comes in where I'm like, sex isn't just biological. We're two human mm-hmm. beings. You've got the spiritual, emotional, physical component, the psychological component. Those are now meeting. How do we navigate this? And really for a new couple, like anything else, the, the greater challenge is going to be, can you communicate around it? Can you talk about it? Can you actually say like, hey, so I was kind of hoping this would happen less, happen more, be different. How do we talk about it? So really the better, you know, a newly married couple can learn how to share their feelings and their thoughts, the better this is going to go. For those that are already struggling to express vulnerability uh, of any kind, you know, kind of opening up and sharing, then this is going to be even more difficult for them. Because you're taking something that's extremely personal, extremely sensitive, and on top of that, you've got the inability to be vulnerable or share or talk about something, it can be hard. So even though it seems like we should just focus on, you know, teaching people how to engage in in sex to have a satisfying sex life, I often go, I think it's over here first. I think we got to understand how to communicate and talk with each other so that you can build, whether it's a a satisfying sex life, great communication, Mm -hmm. an excellent, you know, balance in the home of your expectations of free time and division of labor. I see a lot of it comes back to being able to communicate well. And with Mm -hmm. that, I often tell people that are not married yet, or those newly married, and please don't freak out about that either. Because communication skills are something you learn with practice. Like, I I love that there's an emphasis these days on getting to know yourself better before marriage. We're having more premarital conversation. I like that. And I'm 42 years old and I'm still getting to know myself better and I'm still figuring out my stuff, right? So I feel like we have this idea that we want to save people from pain and difficulty, but we also have to accept that part of the journey is is kind of fumbling your way through figuring it out. So the better you can practice communication with yourself before you're married, knowing what you want, knowing what you're feeling, knowing what makes you anxious, knowing what makes you feel insecure, knowing what makes you happy and joyful, the better you're going to do at that. But there is going to be that adjustment. So that's kind of where I see the couples in the beginning. When it comes to their beliefs, whether it's newlyweds or beyond, their beliefs about sex itself is like the next big kind of thing that we have to handle. And so, like I said, are they, what are they exposed to? What's the programming that they come with? Can you talk about, um, porn and its role in Muslim marriages? Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, yes, it is something that is quite prevalent in our community from my experience. Um, you know, Muslims are like any other human being. 
you know, like we're just people. And so whatever's plaguing the greater society can also plague us too, especially when we are, I guess, engaged in the greater society by choice, you know, whether that's where you live, but it's also what you choose to consume online, what you look at, what you watch, you know, all of these things that are out there. And yes, it is a major issue. Um, my husband is the founder of purifyyourgaze.com. So that is the, you know, it is for Muslims struggling with sex addiction. So this is a conversation he and I have been having for a really long time. And of course, it also filters in people don't even know that connection that I have. But of course, it comes up a lot. And one of the, the, the greater challenges that I have in the conversation when I'm working with women, when I'm working with the couples, um, I just had a couple yesterday that this is actually the main issue. Uh, that's impacting them is a couple of things. And one of them is, I think sometimes people get caught up on the fact that men are looking, there are women that are participating, but it is still predominantly a male challenge. I would say there's definitely women who I work with that are looking at pornography, but the majority is still men. Um, and that is still where the majority issue lies. And one of the challenges is that we kind of get hung up on talking about how they're looking at haram and they're looking at other women and this is wrong. And that is all absolutely true. But when it comes to the relationship, where is the actual problem? And so I kind of like to open this up a little. If you're not Muslim, so for us, we're like, that's haram, that's forbidden. You're not supposed to look at another woman that's not your wife. Right. But what right. about people who aren't Muslim and they do not have these, uh, you know, these moral guidelines that they adhere to? Why is it a problem for them? And so the reason that I try to expand the conversation is to help people start to understand it's because it's not just what that person's looking at that's the problem. When a person is regularly engaged in pornography, they are not able to experience emotional intimacy because right. the, the, the reason that they're using pornography on a consistent, and we're talking like consistent, we're talking about a problem, not somebody that's all Pathologic. Yeah. yeah. Is because that's a way for them to cope with life. It is like doing drugs. It is like drinking alcohol. It is like people with gambling addictions. Those addictive behaviors, process addictions, they fall into the same category as all these other things. Why mm. is that person addicted to whatever it is? Because they're trying to manage life and they're doing it in a way that's unhealthy, and they're doing it in the, one of the ways that brings them relief or comfort or significance or control or whatever it is that they're seeking. Well, when a person is regularly engaged in numbing out their emotions, one of the most, you know, the, the bigger tragedies beyond all of that is you also lose out on joy and happiness and love and presence and intimacy. That sakina, that tranquility we talk about, all of that that person is no longer able to experience all the love coming from their wife, all that goodness, all that giving, everything, because they are numbed out as a person. So what happens is it's not just that the man is looking at other things. Oftentimes, women don't know what's wrong. They just know that their husbands don't desire them. They don't seem to compliment and pay much attention to them. They feel this distance, but they don't know what it is. They don't feel good enough, but they can't figure out what it is. When they finally find out, for example, they, some, some kind of discovery comes out, things start to fall into place. Mm -hmm. Well, that makes sense. This month's episodes are sponsored by Amana Mutual Funds Trust. Find out more at amanafunds.com. That's A-M-A-N-A funds.com. Any comments or statements made in these episodes do not necessarily reflect those of Saturna Capital Corporation, Saturna Brokerage Services, formerly Investors National Corporation, or their affiliates.
We have health and fitness expert as well as health and wellness coach Mubarika Ibrahim. Um, she is the one-stop shop for Muslims interested in the ketogenic lifestyle. And today we're asking her to tell us how to make sure we can use it to slay all of our goals spiritual, emotional, and physical. Eat in a way as if you had to grow and raise your own food, right? We didn't have all of these uh, all of these various disease and epidemic levels of diabetes and high blood pressure and heart disease when we farmed and we ate what we raised mm-hmm. and what we grew. So think about it in terms of that, what you have on your plate, what you have in your refrigerator and freezer, how close is it to what how it occurs in nature so that's the first philosophy the second philosophy that i would tell people is what is the proportion of it that you would eat if you had to raise and grow your own food right so i use it even in a low-carb ketogenic sense people tend to make I can't eat regular bread, so I'm going to make almond meal this and almond meal that and almond meal that, right? And then they start having digestive disturbances. I don't understand. I'm doing everything right, right? Or they're eating cheese at every single meal. I don't understand why I'm doing everything right, right? So it's not just about being low carb. Is if you had to grow your own almonds, you wouldn't be using an entire crop of almonds to make two loaves of bread or even almond milk every single day, right? It would literally not be possible with the amount of time, effort, harvesting of almonds that you had to do, right? So when we think of even eating in a ketogenic manner, it is a very natural way to eat. Being in ketosis is a natural thing that we are allowed. Ramadan is coming up mm-hmm. and I very tongue-in-cheekly but quite seriously say that is shahril ketosis <laughs> because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the month of ketosis. It is. Whether you want to follow a ketogenic diet or not, you will achieve ketosis at some point in your day. Yes. <laughs> that is how beneficial it is that Allah literally required us <laughs> to stop eating so that we can heal our body. Yes. <laughs> so it's a very natural form of eating. And we, a hundred years ago, 200 years ago, we didn't eat 50% of our diet from grains. Certainly mm-hmm. not from sugar and the processed foods that we have. So when I think about ketogenic eating, whether it's here in the United States or the UK, or I have clients in Nigeria and Ghana and like all over the world, when you even think about traditional diets and you take them back, the the grains was not the main thing. I'll give you an example. So recently I went to um, Senegal Um, to visit. And it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And I had the, um, I had the pleasure of making a friend there who was like, he was like a walking encyclopedia (laughs) for the history of Senegal, the history of Islam in Senegal. Like he was just really a wealth of information. And one of the really interesting things that I, that he um, explained to me was that 
currently rice is like the main staple in Senegal. Like if you're mm -hmm. Senegalese and if you don't have rice, you feel like you have not actually eaten a meal. <laughs> yes. But he said rice is actually not even native to Senegal. The reason mm. why rice became a staple is because Senegal was colonized by the French. The French also colonized Thailand and they began to ship rice from Thailand to Senegal. Rice doesn't even grow in the landscape of Senegal. So it is not native to their culture. It is a result of colonization. So even so if interesting. you look at their traditional diets, not what your grandmother ate, literally go back three, four generations. And if you even ate like them, you would eat less grains, less carbohydrates, less sugar, certainly no processed foods. So it's really getting back to when we were the most natural in our eating, the most intuitive in our eating, and we actually ate the way that nature grows and raises for us to eat. Early when this podcast started and we asked our audience who they wanted to talk to, the first name we got was Jose Majedidi. Mm -hmm. And for years we were like, oh, how do we contact her? And so it took a while to cyberstalk, as you know I do that. Mm -hmm. um, but alhamdulillah, we ended up meeting her on Clubhouse and we're like, we need you to come on our podcast one day. And she did not say no. So we invited her to get some insight on how we can get the best spiritual upliftment during Ramadan and continue it forward after the holy month is over. Thank you so much. Assalamu alaikum. Inshallah. You are well. The lack of prioritization um, and what I mean by that is really like if we sit and we sit with ourselves and we're asking the right questions, like, why am I here? What am I doing here? Who put me here? Right. The conclusions all are the same, which is right. Allah. Right. And if we had that real clear understanding that Allah is our ultimate objective, then everything else from there gradually falls into place. But I think what's happening is because you know, we, we get, we're in, you know, this, this, um, the, the, I mean, in the West anyway, for those who are listening, who are, you know, in America, there's always been this idea of the American dream, right? So I think a lot of us, even who've immigrated here, kind of got caught up in that, which is, we want the, you know, amazing house and the car and all of the, the lifestyle, you know, things that come with that. And so, which is a very nafsi worldly, you know, impulse that every human being has, right? And so we've got we get distracted with that. And so you see a lot of parents, for example, um, investing early into their children's, um, you know, education, like secular education. So they will even. I met someone recently. I mean, I'm not joking. They they said this, and I don't know if she was joking. I because I didn't get a chance to follow, but she seemed very serious that her young toddler was taking coding. Um, and, you know, he's probably still in diapers. And I was like, wow, that's that's amazing. And, you know, I, I get it. People want to, you know, they have, they're interested in these things, and I understand. But to me, I see this so much in, in the community that I'm in, where there's so much em emphasis on academic performance and excelling in these areas, or even sports. You see parents driving all over the, the, the state or the country for sport meets, you know. And But are we investing in proper Islamic education for our children? Are we giving them good examples? Are we surrounding them? And not in Sunday school, you know, in all fairness to all of our 
masajid and our Sunday school teachers is not an adequate, you know, uh, you know, replacement for the tarbiyah and the holistic Islamic education that parents are responsible to give. It's one of the rights of children. And empathy is so critical for us to develop in our young children because when they see, for example, community members, you know, come like being those Ramadan Muslims, instead of allowing judgment to pass over them, right? They'll realize like, you know, there's something that maybe they've, you know, that, that Allah's because, you know, it's a sacred time, it's a special time, that Allah's drawing them closer in the month of Ramadan and they, they're being given a medicine and that they, you know, you know, and hopefully they'll realize that they've been sick all this time without it and it'll sustain them. But it's to, you know, it'll hopefully give them more empathy. And then within the family, um, when they look at mom, you know, tired and maybe not really, you know, kind of having one of those ebb moments where she's retreating a little bit or dad and, and taking a bit of a pause, um, that it's not to judge them, but to say, you know what, there's maybe they're overwhelmed. Maybe they have a lot on their plate and I can go and ask them, like, is there anything I can help you with? Because I've noticed lately you've been a little bit more tired or just, you know, kind of checking out, maybe not reading as much Quran or you're doing your prayers a little faster than before. Is there anything I can, I can help you with mom or dad, you know, and you humanize one another. And and then you see these you know the 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 synchronicity or the that that beautiful relationship that everybody in the household should have of supporting one another right because we are a deen of jamaat we need to um, to uplift one another and it, we're not we shouldn't all be kind of doing this on our own which I, I think is one of the the problems of how a lot of secular people view religion is like it's just my own individual path. Yes and no to a certain degree because it's also something that we're supposed to be as Muslims doing together too. We pray together, we fast together, we do hajj together. And in our households, we should find, like I said, that empathy to be able to support one another when we are seeing ebbs and flows and realize it's just part of human nature. Um, and then the, the last quality I'll just mention is social skills, right? Which is also, I mean, amazing uh, skill set to have, and it's it's a very broad topic. But the point is, when you learn your dean in this organized way and really try to have some structure, then uh, I think you'll start to appreciate that being human. Uh, I mean, having ebbs and flows is, is part of being human because this dunya is designed that way. It's designed to give us, you know, to test us. So we will be tested. And those are the times where we're going to fall weak. And there are times where Allah is calling us and he's pulling us towards him. And we have those awakenings. Um, and as long as we're kind of like going up that ladder or that staircase, you know, in terms of like a visual, you know, having just these ups, highs and lows, highs and lows or ebbs and flows, as long as we don't remain stagnant. And that's where your point about seeing yourself as a ongoing project, you're like working, work, you know, under construction, you're, it's, it's, you know, you're a student for life. When you see yourself like that and you teach your children to also see themselves like that, then I think you'll have a much healthier understanding of what faith is and the, and the purpose of our faith is, you know, to help cultivate the best in us, but we're, we're human. Sex, you know, because sex is considered a dirty word. So if you consider sex a dirty word, can you imagine if you're addicted to watching it? We've brought in a, our expert, Dr. Madiha Tassin, and she's going to tell us about this problem in the Muslim community. Dr. Tassin, welcome. It's not just like they watch three times a week and that's it. This is how I know something is going on. You're looking for that change from your kind of normal baseline relationship. You know, you might see a sudden shift in sexual preferences, whether it's like different positions, you know, things that make you feel uncomfortable that you didn't really have to do before. Like you're looking for those kinds of changes. Then when it comes to technology, right, things like 
pornographic pop-ups popping up on any shared devices you might have, right? You might see clearing of the history, the browsing history. Um, you might see a lot of use of technology that you didn't see before, like staying up late nights um, or watching in isolation and secrecy, right? Spending a lot of time um, really not wanting interaction with you and so wanting to be alone. So any one of those things by themselves, are they problematic, right? If you're partner wants to spend time alone, are you going to be like, oh my God, this is productive? No, right? <laughs> like It's more of a, a combination of this behavior that you're observing over time. So those are just some of the signs you want to look for. If you're suspecting something, um, the very, very first thing that you need to do is to calm yourself. <laughs> as a mom, as a parent in general, like our emotions will take over, right? Very, very naturally. Mm -hmm. Um you want to run in there and be like, oh, my God, what's going on? How could you do this? You know better. You know, we we, we didn't teach you this. We've talked. You know, like that's what you want to do as a parent. And that's the worst thing that you could do. So the very, very first step is to calm yourself and collect yourself. If that takes a day, OK, if it takes an hour. OK, right. Whatever it means for you. And, and we know that comes from our sunnah, right? And what we've learned as Muslims is to first always pause and reflect, pause and reflect. So as a mom, that's the first thing you want to do, pause and reflect. Really for yourself, understand what's bothering you about this situation. Is it really that this person, that your child is doing this? Or is it that you feel betrayed? Is it that you feel as a failure, you know, as a parent? Is it that you feel guilty? Like work through that first. Otherwise you're going to carry that into the conversation with your children and they're not going to hear, oh, my God, this is harmful for me. They're going to hear my mom, this, my mom, this, my mom, that. Right. So once you've done that, the second thing is before you jump into action mode, you need to go into conversation mode and understanding mode. So that means, again, you need to be ready to have that conversation. But your what is your purpose in that conversation? Is it to figure out what app they're using, how they got access, who got them into this? Or is it what's really going on with my child that's making them watch pornography? What is motivating them so I can help them help themselves? That's the main thing. That's how you want to approach the conversation. So you have to do that with open-ended questions, with no judgment, even if their response drives you up the wall and you're like, how could you believe, <laughs> you know, like your kid's going to tell you, well, everybody's doing it. What's the problem, Right. You cannot, don't fall for that bait, right? You have to approach it with open-ended questions of trying to get to that end goal of what's happening in my child to make him or her watch this. And how can I help him or her understand how to help themselves? Of course, that's not, that's different for a 10-year-old versus a 15-year-old. So as a parent, I'm hoping, you know, you would adjust that. So have that conversation. There's, like I said, I could go into a whole talk just on how to have that conversation, but in the interest of making sure there's enough time, the toolkit definitely goes into tips on what, like how to frame your questions, how to step back and reflect. So, you know, people can definitely go there. Um, but the really important part also is to have an action plan then after that. We are um, so excited and um, to bring Lisa Vogel, co-founder of the Verona Collection, the first modest fashion brand to be launched, featured, and sold in a major American department store. I always love hearing the story about how people came 
to Islam. And if you don't mind sharing, you said you're an open book, I'm ready to hear it. So how did how did you come about it? Did you read a book? Did you meet somebody? Like, tell us what your um, conversion story is. It, it was just like Islam just kept coming back into my life. It was, I'll answer just for anybody that might be curious. Nope, was nothing to do with a man. That's usually people's first assumption as okay. a revert. I converted on my own without a man. So um, I just want to put that on the table. Um, and honestly, I think when people think that there must have been a relationship involved for that reason, it's kind of not having full faith of your Islam, that it's like, shouldn't mm-hmm. Islam speak for itself or you man to bring you to religion? But not to you know downplay that that's the reason a lot of people do come into it, alhamdulillah, but not everyone's reason. Um, so my journey started back in when I was like 20, I, um, I'm kind of a free spirit. Um, I, you know, I, I just like jump into things and I decided I wanted to uh, move to Morocco <laughs> so, for a semester. I woke up one day and decided to be Moroccan. I love that. That's who I am. Like my mom kind of just like, like she's like done with me. Like I would just call and be like, hey, you're up the next day. Um, <laughs> so I was set out to it. I was like, I want to do like, I want to backpack through Europe and then I want to spend time in Morocco. So I um, took a semester off of college and I did an internship. It was paid and I got a second job and I waitressed at night and I saved like every penny um, to, to pay for all of this. And I had a Moroccan friend in college and he um, hooked me up with, it was like his adopted grandfather who was the director of American Language Center in Tangier, Morocco, and hooked me up with a a teaching job while I was there. So I took this on and then I, you know, stayed with, you know, some of his extended family. So I actually lived with the Moroccan family when I was in Morocco. And before that, I, I traveled through Europe and then landed in Morocco, um, and I taught English for three months. And because I was with a Moroccan family right in the Medina, they were, you know, very, very humble. They uh, didn't have hot water. They didn't have a toilet. It was completely wow. like a why, you know, new experience for me that has had, you know, privilege my whole life in every sense of the imagination and went right into this. Um but when I was there, I decided to wear an abaya and hijab just out of respect. It wasn't mm-hmm. any, you know, necessarily because I was interested in Islam. It was simply because I wanted to be respectful to the norms. So I wore it outside and then I would even like pray with the family. I didn't really, I didn't know what I was saying. I didn't know what I was learning. So it was just kind of like going through the motions, but it was just an experience for me. Um... I came back, went back to college, uh, got my you know degree, and um, I decided that, and I got a corporate job in Chicago, and I decided that I just wanted to completely switch careers and go into photography. So I like moved to Florida, and I got <laughs> uh, went into school for <laughs> went to school uh, for photography, and um, one of the semesters uh, we were given a project, and we could choose the topic to do a mini documentary. And I chose to uh, focus on why women wear the hijab. So I was like, let me really understand the meaning behind it. And, you know, even the irony is that, um, I mean, it's even more ironic now that I have a hijab brand, but 
even, I, I still had a little bit of notion that it was oppressive, even though I wore it out of respect. Um, but I did my interviews um, in Orlando and I was very, um, everything was just eye opening. Um, you know, hearing why women wear the hijab, that I became very interested in Islam from there. And I lived and breathed it, and I, I asked to speak to imams, to, to, to ask them questions. I read the Quran. I watched YouTube videos on Islam. Um, so that's, that's how I ended up learning um, about the religion. We're going to start giving you um, some mom perspectives from the most trending Muslim influencers out there. I mean, we have a whole bunch of them, ladies, starting with none other than rapper activist Mona Hather and her husband, Sebastian Robbins. They are the power couple. Their most recent is a PBS show called The Great Muslim American Road Trip. And we wanted to welcome Mona. How do you go from, you know, being like this rap? protest superstar to like, I just want to dispel, you know, this, this Muslim viewpoint on what American Muslims look like and doing this literally on camera, going across on this amazing road trip. How did that actually happen? God bless my mother. She took our boys for three weeks and we got to do this road trip. We started in Chicago and we, ended up in Los Angeles. Honestly, like it was an education. I thought I, I thought I knew a lot, you know, but I, I learned really how ignorant I am about Muslim history. Yes. And how far back it, that history goes, you know, it predates the concept of America as yes. a nation. That's ex- exactly right. And we're going to get into some of that too, because I, I'm very curious about that. But, you know, before we move forward, like what were some of the challenges that you you faced during filming other than, you know, the obvious? What was something that you were just kind of like surprised by that you didn't think was going to be an issue, but ended up being an issue? Like I, I would tell you, mine would be finding public bathrooms along the way that, just, oh, that would drive me like insane. So what were some of the things that you faced that you weren't necessarily even thinking about when, before you started? Oh girl, the bathrooms were a big one. Yes, I know. I was like, I would wear depends. Like they have those portable. Like uh, I don't know how you would do that. Like so, is that one of them or that hard. you're just like, oh yeah. my god, it's hard. It was intense. Um, just because as a Muslim, you're you're maintaining a level of cleanliness. Clean, exactly. That is, um, it's not hard to maintain, but it is. You have to be intentional. You know. It's a, it's a thing that if you're not mindful, like, you know, it's hard to make your salah on time mm-hmm. if, if, if you're not staying on top of that kind of stuff. So that's really important as a Muslim. And it's something not enough people talk about, you know, tahara, yes. cleanliness and um, ritual purity in Islam. It's such a, such a, such a gift, yes. you know, to constantly be invited into angelic purity. <laughs> uh, that's I, I love this how you describe it because other people would be like, oh, I'm just going to make wudu. But you're like, no, it's ritualistic cleanliness. Was there ever a place that you stopped where you were like, you had a preconceived notion and then you met the people you're like, oh, wait a second, maybe I shouldn't be thinking about it from this way. And I, 
I can kind of have some idea about what I would be thinking. But was there any place along the way that you stopped and you're like, wait a second, they're not mm. how I pictured um, it to be. And, and, and it kind of taught you something about yourself. Ooh, I feel like that happened every time we stopped. And one time in particular, or two times I'll share, in particular, we stopped in a couple different places. Once was Joplin. And um, man, there was this community there in Joplin that had such an attitude of khidma, of service to their community. A lot, of, a lot of them were doctors or in healthcare in general. And there was just this feeling of they really loved to heal people. And their their masjid, if I'm not mistaken, had been burned down twice. Mm-hmm. And there was there was this like we forgive. We forgive and we continue to serve and we heal. And they had this horrible t- tornado rip through Joplin. And they were still like, we're going to serve. It doesn't matter how many times you burn down our mask. We're going to be here to heal as doctors, as healthcare professionals. And for me, there was just this like beautiful, humbling. It was such a beautiful, humbling experience to be around people who were, had that much compassion and forgiveness in their hearts. And that they were just able to continue to serve. You know, the second place I would say is Las Vegas. Mm, That's interesting. Yeah. And it's not exactly on Route 66, but, you know. You took a little detour. It's okay. (laughs) Yeah. With a road trip, there's always like road closures and whatever. And, you know, we came across stuff like that. And we ended up in Las Vegas and so grateful that we did because we met with Mama Nisa and the community at the Muslim village. And that community, man, they, yeah, Allah, they, they are goals. There's like no way we could have this series on Muslims, influencers who are moms as well. Yasmin Kanar or Yaz the Spaz, as we lovingly know her. Um, she's of Cuban and Turkish descent. She has a passion for fashion, design, life, kids, pretty much everything that we love here at Mommy Wa Muslim. Her online content spans everything from modest fashion to hijab tutorials, which I found out is how she started, to cooking in home decor and not to mention everything motherhood. Welcome, Yaz, and thank you so much for being here with us today. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. For my husband, like he never really wanted to be on social media. Like it's not like I, he, it's not like I started with him. So it's not like I needed him. Um, you know, it wasn't about him. It was about me and whatever information I had to share with my audience. So um, it was just, you know, it would have been nice to, you know, do some things here and there. Uh, so at this point, you know, he'll do, I don't know, once in a blue moon or I'll get him like, a you know, jokingly and it'll go viral, something like that. But nothing that's I think scheduled. he's a really good sport, to be yeah. honest, mashallah. Uh, thank you. <laughs> but he's always supportive of everything I do. Like he used to take like all my pictures uh, way back when. And yeah. we've been a little slower lately. Now my tripod takes better pictures than him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I can just appreciate all of these social media husbands 
who take good pictures of their wives and yeah. not of us with our mouth hanging open asleep. Oh, or like, oh, you know, oh, like let me take a picture of you out. and the kids, oh, and I'm God. looking somewhere over here, and the kids are looking good, and he's like, yeah, I did it, and you go no. home, you don't realize until yeah. after you check. It's like you take the crappiest pictures of me. Yeah. So I think these social media husbands who take good pictures, they are rare birds, and I'm so glad you got Very one. Yes, I love protect you. Thank you so much. <laughs> and then as for like my children, um, I never really wanted to show them on social media um, just because, you know, they're like my prized possessions. And as much yes. as like I truly appreciate and love my audience and uh, they've seen me throughout my journey. Um, I don't know. I just felt like, you know, they're my babies. I don't need to expose them to the scare world. I mean, I've dealt with, you know, like stalkers before and just weird, weird people around the world. And I'm like, I don't need to bring that sort of energy or whatever to yes. my home or my children. There was a point where I, there was, I could not go on camera without makeup on. So then it was oh, a point where I'm like, I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure going to, I'm not posting anything because you know, I got to take the time to do my makeup, but then I'm like, Oh, I'm so yes. lazy. So then I got to a point where I'm like, if I don't have time for makeup, just Post deal with it. it. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, uh, this is who I am. I'm confident enough in my skin. Finally. Like, I mean, I've always been confident, but I guess maybe not enough to post without makeup when I was younger. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, we're only getting older, so we might as well enjoy our youth and just be proud of who you are, no matter what, mm-hmm. you know, like we're all human. Nobody's perfect. We are starting our most highly anticipated series, Muslims and severed ties of kinship. We're going to kick off this series with my beautiful co-host, Dr. Uzma Jaffrey. She's going to do a deep dive personally So I am thrilled and excited to interview her today. I see it now. At the time, 100%, I did not. Um, But I see it now, especially like when we did our convert series, when we have talked to guest speakers who happened to, um, Mm -hmm. I think recently we had Anse Najia on, on our most recent convert series. And, you know, Mm -hmm. she uh, discussed the the difficulties in her relationships that she created, but was able to... um, stay with her family and stay reconciled with her family because her non-Muslim family would not give up on her. And, you know, I know it hurts my heart when I hear about our convert sisters being abandoned by their families or disowned by their families because of the religious choice they made. And I see now um, when Muslim families turn their backs on their children who have, you know, quote unquote, apostated. And the, the repercussions that that can have, because that certainly doesn't bring anybody closer to Islam, right? Uh, disowning them. So I think now as a right, yeah, exactly. and now as a mom, you know, I know growing up for us, the worst thing in the world possible is that, what was it for our South Asian moms? Uh, maybe not your mom, but like for most South Asian moms, the worst thing that could happen was like your kid marries an American and, you know, uh, I don't know, doesn't speak Urdu or their grandchildren don't speak Urdu or something like that, you know? Um, right. But for me, I realized after this situation, the worst thing that could happen to me as a mother was if one of my children left Islam. So when people say things like, oh, my kid did this or my kid did that, I'm like, dude, it could be way worse. It could be way worse. But I know as a mom, even if my kid did that now, like there's no way I could turn my back on him. Right. Um, that's my kid. And I'm not nobody gives right. up on their kid. Like we're not going to do that. And like if our prophets had spouses and children who wouldn't accept Islam, despite them being prophets, then who, like, what chance do we have as like normal flawed people? But that took years and years of study, self-reflection, therapy, 
um, in order to see that. But I, I can see that now right. if people like know what I've said before to our convert sisters and to anybody else, you know, even during our queer Muslim month, you know, to be really honest, if they hear what I say to those people and they hear mm-hmm. me today talking about how, you know, these bridges have been burned, they're going to be like, what a hypocrite. Um, which is why I think it was important for me to come on here and be really open and honest about right. it. Like, I mean, nose job and like, you know, <laughs> severed ties of kinship in one, one go. So all, yeah, open. It all yeah. on the table right now yeah. and today, you know, but that's, I feel like what makes us unique here on this podcast because we are willing to talk about these things, whether it's in print, you know, whether it's uh, uh, um, on camera, on audio. And, you know, you and I have um, talked about this particular topic privately for a yeah. couple of years now. And, you know, I'm not psychoanalyzing you. That is not my thing. But I feel like because I knew how close yeah. the two of you were growing up and well into your, oh, your, yeah. your adulthood, that do you feel like, you know, taking Islam off the table that that played a major role because I, I I think it's fair to say that your parents still have a relationship with him, um, and you're you're you you're only the only one that has yeah. totally severed. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, again, my parents were like, listen, we can't do this because I was demanding it of people. I was like, you will stop talking to him, too, you know, because I was trying to force what I wanted on everybody else. Because at the time, I thought that I could manipulate and control people because that had been done to me. Do that. So I was doing what I was taught. Mm -hmm. Um, But my parents were like, that's our kid. We're never going to leave him, you know, and I took it very personally and I took it as a rejection of me. Um, So it like the fallout was awful. Like, you know, like it ruined the relationship between my parents and me. It uh, obviously this bridge was burned between my brother and myself to the point where I, you know, we worked in the same hospital (laughs) and it was just awful because people would come and they would talk to me about him. And I would be like, no, I don't, I don't talk. They would be like, how is he? I was like, I don't know. I don't talk to him, you know? So then people would ask and I would tell them what I thought. And, you know, to some extent I still do that, you know, um, I try to, I'm not as acidic about it anymore. I'm just like, oh, I wouldn't know. Like, you should ask my parents. Um, mm-hmm. But my parents were so frightened of me because I told them, I don't ever want to hear his name. I don't want to know what's going on. I literally don't care if he lives or dies. Do not mention his name to me. Do not mention him to my children because oh. they were young enough at the time. My kids were, I think, six and under, five and under. So, you know, I was like, they're still young enough that mm-hmm. this memory can be erased. And that's what I want, you know? So I was even controlling it for my children, which uh, is really, really uh, unfair to make that kind of a decision for your children because those are still blood ties that they have the right to maintain. And I did tell my husband, hey, if they're 18 and they remember him and they want to go and they want to meet him, I won't stop them. I just don't want to do it. You know, while they're children and they're minors and they're easily influenced, I don't want them around him. But once they're adults, I think it's okay. We are going to be discussing with you the topic of polygamy. And our first guest is Mecca Nandi. Um, and she is a co-wife coach who is also a polyg- in a polygamous relationship. You have four children, but technically seven children. So that brings us to the question of children in a polygynous collective. So um, can you talk about how they're managed and is there friction when we're co-parenting these children and what that looks like? So when it comes to the co-parenting of the four children, um, there's no friction. We're all on the same accord. But in order for that to happen, 
it's not even based on just the women. It's based on the collective of parents because we can't we have to include that man, that leader, Mm -hmm. that father, that husband. So it's it's not to say that when we are doing dealing with the children on a day to day basis, he may not necessarily be involved in all of those things. But as far as how we're going to raise the children, that was something that was discussed before marriage. Like hmm. before marriage, as far as even when me and uh, he and I were married, and that was in 1996. I said 19. You heard I said that, right? I and heard that. And in the year we graduated high school. <laughs> yeah, I graduated <laughs> high school. Kids call it the olden days. <laughs> yes, the old. That, our kids, all of our kids, must use the same terminology. You were born the in the 1900s. Days, I, exactly. Born in the olden in days. The old, yes. no, it was color TV. I was like, oh my what? god. She was like, did you have computers? Like, like, shut up. up. <laughs> I can't say that. I can't say I was like, I remember when the internet started. Like, yes. it just sounds so <laughs> But we. When but, the cordless phone started. That was amazing. Exactly. Exactly. Who dial tones. Wow. Anyway, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> but we, we, this is a discussion that he had as far as with all of his wives. So it wasn't something that was discussed when children were being had. This was discussions that were when the courting process was being had. So that is really, I would say that's, that's, that's like um, a little tip to throw out there. Like add that to your questions, Yeah, you know, when mm-hmm. courting, if courting, but if you're already in it and you're not sure how to go about it, having those discussions as far as, as a family collective. So that way everybody is on board um, as to knowing how things will be done and carried out, regardless if the child is at your house, her house, her other mother house, or wherever, that you know we're still honoring and following the same type of rulings. Now, mm. there may be there, it may be done, and and it, it'll may be done, you know, with a certain foundation in mind, but it still looks differently per mom. Yeah, you know, I am. I, 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 I'm, I'm short. Okay. Aww. So they like to call me the little chihuahua because you know, I have a big bark. <laughs> yeah. So, so I may be the one who would start off with a big bark, but then I'll pull you aside and we're talking about why this is an issue and a problem and the, the consequences is this set in the fourth or whatever. Whereas, you know, there are one of their other moms may approach the situation differently. We also are knowing, we, I'm sorry, we also know that about each person. Like we know what type of parenting we're going to give with the foundation that is all agreed upon across the board. So it's not necessarily an issue. And if for some reason, if there is something that is an issue, we discuss it amongst the parents, not yes. around the children. So that way, again, we're on the same accord because the one thing that you don't want to give kids is to think that they're not on the same accord. Let's mm-hmm. see who we can try to placate to get on our side. Mm-mm. Yeah. I think kids happen. do that no matter <laughs> so, what, right? Like whether you're in yes, a pocket regardless, or regardless. Exactly. Exactly. It's actually that was easier was for them in a polygynous relationship because I got like at least three parents that I can go and talk to and play off of each other. And the more, the merrier for them, right? <laughs> That's Maybe what somebody's going to miss something. That's yeah. what they would think. Because sometimes they say, oh, can I do this? I'm like, what did your mom say? Yeah. That's the first thing that I want to say. What did your mom say? Did you ask your mom first? Mm. And if they said, oh, well, yeah, she said it's okay. I said, okay, let me confirm. Exactly. 
So it's Sweet. like, you know, again, we're all working together because these children, yeah. you know, we're not raising them separately. We're we're, we're raising them collectively. Oh, I like that. That was bars right oh, here. Oh, my gosh. But write it down like and put it so on a T-shirt. Perfect. Write it down. Put it on a T-shirt. Yes. I know. I love that. Yeah, that's that like the entire one. mom community because I love that you're respecting your co-wives this way, but also... Can we just respect other mothers mm-hmm. that way? Like in our day to day? Look at yes. that. Yes. <laughs> Wouldn't the world be a better place if we could just Listen. respect other moms' rules and the ways they went run things? Let me just run it by her real quick. Check, check, yes. check. It's not yes. hard. Yes. Right? Yes. So absolutely. Simple. No, I absolutely oh love that. And this. I have to say, like, you know, I started off, I, I can't say by the end of this conversation, first of all, I what I can say is yeah. I love you and your energy. That's first and I foremost. So if you are like, you know, the example of it, like, okay, I'm willing to look a little a bit more into it. I can't say that I'm convinced. I'm just being blunt about that. But what I am, and I do feel um, that I am more understanding of the reasons why people do that. And I can see the benefits. Whereas 24 hours ago, I that was not the case. So that is just something that we are trying to do here at Mommy While Muslim is to, again, we're not here to say we're all going to agree or not agree, but what, what we are saying is providing an outlet so that we can get to a basic form of understanding. We hope you enjoyed this very special edition of Mommy While Muslim. Assalamualaikum, everyone, and we'll have a brand new episode ready for you next year. Thanks again for joining Zeba and Uzman, Momming While Muslim today. Please email us your thoughts or questions and follow us on Facebook and Instagram because this podcast was designed to cater your needs. Make sure you check out the show notes to find the links and resources for this episode. And remember to help a mama out and leave a review of the show as well as to like it on your podcast app of choice because that helps us grow. Tune in next week for another episode of Mommy While Muslim. Assalamualaikum, everyone.